This is why we need to heal from the impact and influence of the performance trap because the performance trap drives our dialogue mm. and what we tell ourselves. I was listening to Tim Keller speak one time. He had this really short devotion. It was five minutes long, but it was so powerful. And he said, basically, you need to stop listening to yourself and then start listening to yourself. And what he did is he said, stop listening to this, you know, dialogue in your head and what it's saying to you mm. and start listening to who God says yourself really is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. Your faith is a journey you must take. It's not something that someone else can do for you, deliver to you, or mm -hmm. think through for you, but instead it is something that you actually have to work through. Otherwise, you're just gliding through life without a clue in your head. The Holy Spirit is not an AI that will text you and tell you when to pick up your prescription. This is true. <laughs> so instead, you must go through that journey of faith. You must decide what you believe and why you believe it. And a lot of that comes down to being able to critically think for yourself. And that's what we are here to yes. teach and encourage you to do here on the Salty Pastor Podcast. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host. And we cannot do the Salty Pastor Podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, <laughs> Dr. Douglas Peak. So good to be with all of you. I'm glad you guys are joining us. This has really a, been a unique study, and I think that it's just uh, so enlightening, and it's really opening up some things. So I hope God is blessing and working in your life as we dig into this whole notion of our value and emotional healing. So Thursdays on the Salty Pastor are application day, days where we take what we learned on Tuesday in our biblical studies mm -hmm. and then apply them to everyday life. So I've been thinking about how Jesus didn't just come to heal us spiritually, but in other areas as well. We, yeah. we in church tend to focus only on that spiritual healing, and you're really revealing some things that he's also very interested in helping us heal. Mm -hmm. And so I'm starting to think that growing strong in faith requires a certain amount of emotional healing as well. It's not just this one section. It's all connected, right? Yeah. And I, I think that today it requires more emotional healing. And I, I think particularly for men, mm. and the reason why I would say that is because society up until about a hundred years ago, a hundred, I think it was in, in 1920, 90% of all Americans lived in and worked in agriculture. So you lived out in small little farms, right? Right. And if you lived in the city, then you had a manufacturing job, right? So you would work long, yep. hard hours, physical labor. And here's the deal is that men were designed, our bodies, emotionally, chemically, neurochemically, everything it was designed for hard labor, right? That's what we're designed for. So if you're not physically working hard each and every day, guess what that does is that it doesn't give a male any type of emotional release. Mm. It doesn't give him any capacity to deal with his emotions. Those emotions become dominant in his life and they can get him all messed up. Right. Right. And so that's one reason why physical activity and work and stuff was so important for men is because it was one of the ways in which they process their emotions. Mm. They were able to get rid of them. And, but now there's no way to do that. And so they take on a life of their own. So let's do a quick review of what we studied in the past. And that is our sense of value is what drives our lives and your foundational sense of value is what orders your emotional life. So if your emotional life is in a whirlwind, guess what? your, your sense of value is all messed up. Right. 
And the way you fix it is, uh, this is what I tell guys all the time is you can't control your emotions, right? It's, that's difficult for guys to control your emotions. And this is why I think on a side note, you know, women and females are constantly trying to emasculate men. What they want to do is they want to take boys and they want to say, well, we're going to teach you how to express your emotions. Well, first and foremost, you know, you think you're doing males a favor by doing that. No, you're not. You're wired to do that. Mm. Males are not wired to do that. And so you're trying to teach him a feminine approach to life when he is created masculine. Okay. So what he has to do is he has to go back and he has to find his center of masculinity, right? And control his masculinity. And then his emotional world will come into order. Okay. And so it, that's why if we try to go out and increase our value through performance or through being accepted by others, we fall into powerful emotional traps. Jesus came to reconcile us in order to provide the value our souls long for by basing our value in the only sustainable way, something outside this reality and based in God. God is objective truth outside of this reality. He is immutable and unchanging. You know what he says? He says, you now stand before me because of the reconciliation, the justified work of Jesus Christ on the cross, holy and blameless and without reproach. Boy, that's a value statement if I ever heard one. That is a value statement, but I want to get down to some practicality, Pastor. <laughs> See whether these Bible principles and values apply most when it comes to our emotional healing. Okay, let me ask you a question. I'll start off with this. Who do you listen to the most, Jesse? Uh, I mean, probably myself. I, I listen to myself or you. You're the other person that is most dominant in my life. <laughs> but guess what? Uh, I pale in comparison to the voice in your head that oh, tells you, sure. right? Yeah, it's a constant what going on in your head. It's a constant conversation. I mean, basically, I'm constantly evaluating myself and what I'm doing and what I should be doing and things I need to get done and how I'm reacting. And I mean, that's yes. all part of that. So in a, a spirit of complete, uh, you know, uh, transparency, what are some of the predominant things that you tell yourself all the time, every single day that I should be finishing this project or that I need to make sure I get that done or yeah. that I need to be not working so much. It's a very contradictory self-talk. <laughs> I need to be working more, but also I need to be working less. Yes. Yes. Because I'm responsible and I have to get, this is why we need to heal from the impact and influence of the performance trap because the performance trap drives our dialogue and mm. what we tell ourselves. I was listening to Tim Keller speak one time. He had this really short devotion. It was five minutes long, but it was so powerful. And he said, basically, you need to stop listening to yourself and then start listening to yourself. And what he did is he said, stop listening to this, you know, dialogue in your head and what it's saying to you mm. and start listening to who God says yourself really is. And I thought, see, that's all about value. And what happens is in, in this, you know, like, it's interesting that you said that is that you, and all those statements that you just said, what I heard is blame. You're blaming yourself. 
you're saying I'm not, I got to get this done means I haven't gotten done what I have to get done. Right. So that's a form of blame. When you said I'm working too much, that's a form of what? Blame. Blame. And so these things are really fascinating to me is because the performance trap always requires blame to be assessed somewhere. Mm. You see in his book, uh, search for significance, McGee writes the following. Our perception of success and failure is often our primary basis for evaluating ourselves and others. If we believe that performance reflects one's value and that failure makes one unacceptable and unworthy of love, then we will usually feel completely justified in condemning those who fail, including ourselves. So I was reading this, you know, what came into mind is remember in the empire strikes back at the very end where he went to the cloud city and they finally, uh, you remember Han Solo and he gets in the millennial Falcon. They, he takes princess Leia and, and they're trying um, to escape and they're going to escape yes. and they go in and he's going to punch it into hyperdrive, you know, and Lando is with them or whatever. Right. And, and nothing happens. And so what are they, they're doing? They keep running around going. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. fault. And I just laugh because when I saw that, that's just always become a motto. So we always run around going, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I mean, in my own brain, that just plays all the time. Well, there's two types of blame. Okay. The first type of blame is I'm going to blame myself. And this is called self-condemnation or recrimination. Okay. And then there is a blaming of others. And that is in the performance trap, our success depends on the contributions of other people. So what? Their failure threatens us. Okay. Okay. And this is realistic. I mean, if you're on a football team and one of the guys isn't blocking or doing his job, you're playing 10 man football and you lose. Right. Right. Um, one of the most things that drives people crazy is when you go to school, public school or uh, college, you always have somebody on your team who does what? Absolutely nothing. Yes. And you have to do all the work. So listen to this quote of McGee. He says this, rather than being objective and looking for a solid biblical solution to our problems, we often resort to either accusing someone else or berating ourselves. Sometimes we blame others to make ourselves feel better because by blaming someone else who failed, we feel superior. In fact, the higher the position of the one who failed, your parents, right? Maybe Mm -hmm. a boss the pastor, a political leader. And then the further they fall, the better we feel. Mm. Okay. So the end result is we try and punish people for mistakes because there's only two really big mistakes that, um, well, let me me rephrase it. We, we in the end result in, in the performance trap of laying blame is that we get in this habit of trying to punish people for their mistakes. We punish ourselves for our mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we punish other people around us for their mistakes. And there's two really big deceptions in that, that really entrap you. And here is the first deception or the first big mistake when you fall down or go down that path. And that is we confuse genuine sin with mistakes. Okay. So we stop giving people the benefit of the doubt. We stop operating in forgiveness and grace. We expect people around us to be absolutely perfect. We never expect ourselves to be perfect, but we expect everybody else. And then if they make a mistake, you know, or they do something sinful, then we impugn intent. We say they did that on purpose to hurt me. Instead of saying, well, maybe they're just not perfect themselves. 
You see, this is one of the biggest issues in marriages that creates uh, a lack of intimacy and separation in marriages is this issue is because if your value is based on how you perform, then you always have to blame something when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you will blame somebody else and you can confuse mistakes with genuine sin. Sometimes our intent is not evil as people. We as people mess up. We always make mistakes. However, the blame trap causes us to blame others because their actions make us look like failures. And our own failure is unacceptable to us. And this is the primary way in which all couples pull apart. All intimacy is bled out of the marriage because we ha our value is based on performance, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in marriage, you take a covenant. A covenant is based on what? Performance. Um, yes. <laughs> right? It's, this is what I'm going to do. But can performance in your marriage make your value go up? No, it cannot. And so when we do premarital counseling and we assess everybody, one of the parts of the assessment tool, it's, it's, it's the most broad-based assessment tool out there, Prepare and Rich. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of couples. And in there, they have this thing called idealistic distortion. And the idealistic distortion is when someone says, my spouse is going to meet all of my needs, mm. you know, and they're going to love me like they love me right now for the rest forever. of my life, forever. That's called idealistic distortion. It's mm -hmm. distorted. And that's not a healthy thing for your relationship. So that's one mistake that this emotional unhealing results in. Okay. Uh, another thing is this is, is that we become, or we believe we are God's righteous warriors of retribution. You know, uh, there was a guy in college that I knew and he would walk around and he would say, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And since I'm a tool of the Lord, prepare for his vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, I think you're misquoting that passage. Yeah. Of scripture. yeah. And because we, we believe that we're God's righteous warriors of retribution. It, it, this is this it's our job you know and that that passage comes out of hebrews chapter 10 where the author says we know god god is the one who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people and what does he say the lord is judge see what i want to do is if i become a righteous warrior for god by the standard of judgment i use i will what be judged be judged now jesus doesn't say don't judge so people who say judge not, you know, I go, okay, you're, yeah, you're totally misconstruing that passage of scripture. Right. But the point is, is this, is he says, he says, the standard you use is the standard. I would like to be known as a standard that we're trying to use at Foothills is one of grace and redemption, mm. right? So even in, even in the worst sinful behaviors, our goal is to try to figure out the redemptive path, right? What is the redemptive path? path. The purpose of staying away from the blame game is so you can stay on the redemptive path. We want to grow in our reconciliation with Jesus. We want to live and walk in the fullness of a mature faith. Uh, here's a quote from McGee. This is how he says it. Look, when you leave the blame game, it does not mean that you become blind to the faults and failures of others. It just means we will continue to see them, but our response to them will change considerably over time from condemnation to compassion. As we depend less on other people for our self-worth, 
their sins and their mistakes become less of a threat to us. And we will desire to help them instead of being compelled to punish them. If you're married, the way to have a strong, intimate relationship filled with joy is not to eliminate your partner's faults. That's not your job. One of the things, this is a pet peeve, and that is, is when women joke about training their husbands. Mm -hmm. I go, that's not your job to train your husband. And guys, if you're married, this is salty, and you feel your wife is trying to manipulate you to train you, then the best thing you can do is not comply. Don't do it. What you need to do is you need to say, we have a conflict that needs to be resolved in a way that's just as beneficial for me as for you. But we're not going to resolve this by me simply acquiescing to what you're going to do. Because over the long run, what happens is that you will not face the fact that you're trying to control this relationship to get more value and security out of that, which, by the way, is a form of idolatry. You may not want to phrase it that way with your wife, but it is true. (laughs) It is a form of idolatry. And what it does is that over time, you'll lose respect for me because I'm just trying to make you happy. And guess what? I I cannot make you happy. That is an impossibility. It's Mm. not my job as your husband to make you happy. My job is to love you as Christ loves you and to provide for you and protect you and to lead our family spiritually. And this leadership in this situation basically means that I'm not going to comply with your request because it's not a righteous request of me. Okay. What I'm going to do is try to help you figure out how to find security in this relationship in a different way. That's probably the best thing you ought to do. Don't comply when you're being manipulated because especially if they're using guilt to manipulate you. McGee said this, you don't become blind to the faults and failures of others, but your response to them changes from condemnation to compassion. And that's critical. So what's the answer to stay out of this blame trap that's so detrimental to our lives well we got to go upstream and you have to work on your value and your value is i've been justified by christ and christ alone when we affirm that our righteousness our justification can only come from jesus then we cannot look to anything else for justification this is why Paul told the Philippians in chapter three, verse seven, whatever things were gained to me, and this is Paul's pedigree. You know, if you read earlier, he, boy, he was he lays accomplished. Yes. He says, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value See how he makes a value? The surpassing mm. value, the, the value is so high, it surpasses everything. And what is the value? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have suffered the loss of all things for him. I count them but mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Here's the key phrase. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He's saying my performance will never justify me. Even though I live in a cause and effect world and my decisions, I have outcomes, I reap what I sow. Those things can never ever provide the value that I need. Mm. The value that I need can only come from outside of this realm. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ who has made me righteousness and who has made me righteous in front of God. And that happens on the basis of faith. 
So I'd like, we talked about the blame trap. I'd like you to talk about this acceptance trap that you've mentioned. What is the influence of the acceptance trap? Well, I think the, it begins with the acceptance trap is similar to performance, but instead of the focus of your value being, this is what I achieve or don't achieve that gives Mm -hmm. me value. It's how do people feel about what I am achieving or interacting with them. The acceptance trap starts with fear and it's the fear of being rejected and who isn't afraid of rejection. Nobody, nobody, everybody's afraid of rejection. Uh, in that book uh, that I keep referencing, McGee tells a story of a young man named Michael. Michael married this beautiful girl. I mean, she was a 10 and she loved him deeply. She was deeply committed to him, but he grew up in a blended family. His parents got divorced when he was six. A couple of years later, when he was eight or nine, his dad married a woman with three kids. Subconsciously, she pushed Michael to the side, right? Because she wanted her husband to invest in her three biological kids, which is very common. I know all kinds of men today that this happened to. They, they have a phrase for it. They call, well, I was first round. In the first round, never gets the best of the dad. It's always the second round. And that's really hard for grown men when they see their dad who he was a bad dad. You know, maybe he was uh, alcoholic or workaholic. He was trapped in the performance thing. His wife was pressuring him. It's so toxic. He wasn't there. He gets divorced. He disappears. And then in his forties, he gets uh, sober. He gets clean. He get he comes, he meets God. He does all this kind of stuff. And then this woman comes along in her thirties and he marries her. And then these kids get all the love and affection and attention that these grown men never got from their fathers, mm-hmm. you know? So that's it's hard. And in Michael's case, what happened, he was married, but he subconsciously now held back from his wife because he couldn't handle being rejected by her. He knew that she loved him and she, he, he, she was so important to him. He held back and this was causing a lot of problems because she knew something was, you know, and, and he didn't know because this fear of rejection drives you at such a deep emotional level, you're prone to things like anger and resentment and hostility. The very person that loves you the most, like in Michael's case, his wife was the very person who heightened his fear of rejection and created hostility and resentment in his life. How does a loving woman create hostility in the guy's life? Because his value is based on what? acceptance Acceptance. from others you see and what it does is when a guy particularly falls into this trap without knowing it it makes you easily manipulated women are easily manipulated when they live for the acceptance of others it opens up the door to all types of codependent behavior you know hypersensitivity to opinions uh attachment issues uh uh, over overstepping boundaries issues avoidance issues all of these codependent things that people talk about in today's world and that's why i see it's such a big issue particularly for single guys this is why dating is so difficult for guys is because so many of them grew up in these situations and when you have an acceptance issue this is what's really important some guys say well i don't live for the acceptance of anybody i'm a i'm a, a introvert and i'm isolated and i don't need anybody well guess what that's ex- 
that's driven by a fear of rejection, which is mm. an acceptance of others issue. Your value right. is based on that. You're just avoiding it. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're doing the exact opposite, but it's still driven by the same power plant. Right. And until you heal that emotionally, it's going to be really, really difficult to walk in the fullness. How do you heal? It has to do with your value. So, I mean, Jesus wants to heal us from all these traps that we could potentially fall into. How does he do that? Well, I think that's where we get down to this issue of reconciliation. Since we've been justified, right? Relationally, we're reconciled to God. God's your loving father. He's the father you never had. Mm. Okay. God is your, uh, he is your king and your Lord, but he's a different king. He's not a far away king. We have now the spirit, Abba, father, the spirit within us cries out, Abba. And that is the, the Jewish word for dad. So he's close. He has this sense uh, about it. And that is, is that one of the things that we do in our family, and I'm not trying to hold myself up as an example, but just to illustrate the point is that, you know, uh, I've raised my boys and my, my youngest son, you know, as a senior in high school, I'm super proud of him. He should be proud of himself and the man that he's becoming. But one of the things that I always tell him is even when I have to have tough conversations with him is who's always got your back, son. And he, without hesitation, he always says, my dad does. Mm. And how, how come he feels that way? Cause in anytime, you know, I do something fun, you know, anytime we do what he wants or I get him the gift he wants, I'm always like, Hey, who's got your back, man? Mm -hmm. He goes, dad, you know, dad's taking care of me. And you know, whenever he goes out and you know, he's older now and he can say, Hey, can you stop and pick us up some eggs and milk, you know, and he'll come in he'll say, okay, dad, I spent $10. I always give him 15. You right. know why? Who's got your back, son? Well, your dad does. Because see, he's already learned the value of money. He works. He understands that. So now anytime I give him extra, how does he feel about it? Feels excited. I mean, yeah. he understands what it's worth. Yeah. Oh, it's a gift from dad. You know, right. it's a gift. Dad's just saying he loves me. And so, you know, you can have a lot of hard conversations, a lot of coaching with your kids if they know that you love them. Mm -hmm. And so that's so important. You know, um, my kids are just so important to me in my life as well as my wife and extended family. And so do you feel that with God? Do you feel that with God? A lot of people would say, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? This is salty. You're not going to go to a concert and feel that way. You're not going to hike to a top of a mountain and have an experience and feel that way. You're not going to get a sweat tent and smoke peyote and feel that way. Because <laughs> what you're trying to do is you're trying to manufacture feelings of emotions of intimacy, mm -hmm. right? And here's the best way to illustrate it. Uh, when people first fall in love, young lovers, what do they do? They always talk about their love for one another. Oh, I love you so much. And you love me. And oh, I love you so much. And you love me. And we love each other. And we talk about our love. And we talk about our relationship because our relationship is based on love. And it's all about love. And you got love for me. And I got love for you. And we got all <laughs> kinds of love, right? That's what you're doing, right? Yeah. That's, what, that's what it's all about. And you're going like, uh, okay, that seems a little what? Shallow. Shallow, yeah. What, what's real love? It's when two people start doing life together. Mm -hmm. You see, we're doing it together. We're not talking about our relationship. We're just living our relationship. And so that's why you can't go to a, a Christian concert and be convinced of God's love. You may have an emotional experience. I'm not discounting that, but that's not how you actually know you're close to God. That comes 
in Hebrews chapter four. Remember, I always said the scripture always has an answer. Mm -hmm. The author writes the following words, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let's hold firmly to our what? Confession. Mm. Our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet he did not succumb. He did not sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. What does that mean, approach the throne of grace with confidence? He's not saying, let's show up and say, Jesus, man, I got my Christian life together, and I'm here, man. I'm, I've got my A game on, and I'm in your presence. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, your priest, Jesus, your intercessor, has been tempted in the same way that you were, so he understands your weakness your flaw, your failures. And that's why you can approach what? The throne of grace with confidence because that's why it exists. John writes, if we confess our sins, not our accomplishments, but our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from the unrighteousness. So the, the author of Hebrews is saying, approach the throne of grace with confidence. The way that you get out of the uh, acceptance and what it does to emotionally is you work on your confession of who you are in Christ, that I have been reconciled to God. And because of Jesus Christ, I enter with confidence into the throne room of grace. I receive the grace of God because of Jesus Christ, not of my own accord, but because of what Christ did on the cross for me. And he understands my weakness. He understands my flaws. So when I approach the throne of grace with confidence, I cannot place my confidence in anything else. You know, there's a time uh, a while back, somebody said uh, to me, they said, well, you know, I, I know that God uh, loves me and he values me and he thinks I'm important, but I just don't believe it. Mm. And I, asked them this question. I said, Oh, so God's a liar. No. Well, of course God's not a liar. Da, da, da. Okay. Then who's the liar? And they thought on that a long time and they came back later and they said something really profound. They came up to me and they said, I am the mm. liar. And that's why you need a confession. Your confession is who you are in Christ, and you claim that as the truth of reality. And that's so powerful. That's how we heal these things. That's how our emotional life gets ordered. You, you said it in the Tuesday's podcast. You said, you know, when we work on these core upstream things, guess what? So many of our downstream problems just go away. Mm -hmm. We work on these upstream things. So much of our emotional dysfunction and unhealth simply gets resolved by the healing power of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you so much, Pastor, for sharing all that with us. I really appreciate your 
taking these things that can sometimes seem abstract <laughs> and giving us some real practical application each week. We really appreciate that. I know I more than probably <laughs> as much as everybody else in the audience really enjoy that. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. I hope you join us on Sunday as Pastor Doug elaborates on this emotional healing even further during his sermon. And until next week, be blessed. Blessings. Thank you.